What a joy it is to stand before you and bring the Word of God this morning. And it's very, very good to see some of you back from illnesses. I think a lot, some kind of virus that was going around or still is going around, but uh, you're able to be back with us today. We're thankful for that. At least one victim of a very painful malady that we call a kidney stone uh, and didn't think he wanted to be here last week, and I understand that. But um, it's good to be with you. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, we're actually going to start our reading in the last half of the last verse of chapter 7 and read through chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, and if you would stand with me as we read the word of God together. The last part of Nehemiah 7:73 says and when the seventh month had come the people of Israel were in their towns and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah, on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malchisha, uh, Hashum, Hadbanadan, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground, so Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebethai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peleiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads 
of fathers' houses, of all the people with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booze as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in the booze. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to the day of the people of Israel, of Israel had to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. There was a very great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray. Father, what a tremendous passage of Scripture. We thank you for its inclusion in the word for we learn so much from it and by your grace we will do that today by your grace will we be we will be challenged by what we hear lord help us to have ears to hear hearts to not only understand but to heed the truth that we find before us may we find rejoicing in this passage And may we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You can be seated. As I come before you this morning, I'm assuming that many of you, if not most of you, have heard of attacks on the Bible that are currently making the rounds, even some of those attacks coming from evangelical circles. From prominent pastors of megachurches to women who ignore clear teaching of a passage such as 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 15, saying things like, we shouldn't let just a couple of verses of Scripture divide us, as though just a couple of verses of Scripture are really unimportant. And then again, there is this phrase, which is generally speaking a major warning sign to believers that the Bible is about to be attacked. Well, that is just cultural And since the culture has changed, we can look at that and interpret it in another fashion if we so desire. Now, I do understand that some things are cultural and you have to be careful here, but I also hear people use that as an excuse to just throw away very clear teachings of the Word of God. It's likely you've heard these and perhaps many more ways through which the Word of God is being attacked. And we really should not be surprised when the Word of God is attacked because the devil has been attacking the Word since the time of the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. Past God said. That said, our current message is not really about frontal attacks on the Word of God. There is, I think, a much more subtle way in which the word is attacked, especially among believers, and that is through neglect or loss. We see 
an example of this in the time of King Josiah. We're told in 2 Chronicles 34, beginning with verse 14, while we were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And that was a sign of deep mourning. Now, it's obvious that through the evil guidance of past kings, Manasseh in particular, coupled with the fact that the children of Israel proved to be a stiff-necked people at times, that the word had been ignored to the point of having been lost. It's almost incredible to me that you read this and they discovered, they found the law. They had ignored it until they lost it. It's a terrible shame that the word had been so ignored that it was lost. But we might ask, especially in light of the fact that we are being told again and again today that the Bible is negotiable or not that important, or that parts of it are not accurate and are really, in that case, not important at all, just how important is the word of God? And just how important is the word of God to me and to you? What does the Bible say about itself and its importance? Now we can say much more here, but let me sum it up through the following scripture passages. First, Jesus gives clear indication that the word of God is vital in the salvation of all who come to know him. Note the parable of the sower from Luke Chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air, air devoured it. And some fell on a rock. And as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it, and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and 
in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, and the implication there, of course, is that they are hearing the word of God. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the, snare, by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Note that the seed here is the word of God. The word must be sown into the hearts and minds of men, or else there will be no salvation. We see this emphasized also in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17, where the Apostle Paul said this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. By the way, we're told in Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please him, that's God. And we are told in the verses we just read that faith comes through hearing the word. So how important is the word? Without it, there is no faith, there is no hope, and there is no way that we could ever please God. The writer of Hebrews also teaches the importance of the word in chapter 4 when he says in verses 11 and thir- or 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We see here that truly no man, no woman, no child can come to faith, have sins forgiven, and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ where the word of God is not heard and understood. And it's not simply important, by the way, for it to be heard. If it is heard but not understood, it doesn't help. We must understand what we are hearing. Let me tie this into what we've been doing here for a little while. Brother Damon has been preaching from Jonah. We read in Jonah 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. What was it he call out against it? The message that I tell you. In other words, he was to preach to them the word of God. And he wasn't to alter the message. He wasn't to confuse the message. He wasn't to uh, sweep part of the message under the rug because it might not be acceptable. And remember what that message was in a nutshell? Forty days and God's going to destroy this city. Not a popular message. And yet he was to preach that and God would use that to bring that city to its knees in repentance. 
And in verse 10, it says that God saw their works and relented of the judgment that he would have brought upon them. They heard the word, and God used the word to transform that city. This was God's message, God's word to the people of Nineveh. And such is always the case. If we are to be right with God, if we are to know what God expects of us, we must hear the word. Now, to emphasize this truth more thoroughly, I want us to turn our attention to Nehemiah 8. But before we make that closer look, let me stress one other point. Though Christ is not specifically mentioned in this text, we need to realize that the Lord is using this time in Israel's history to continue the process that will result in the birth, sinless life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus. We heard very well put in Sunday school, if you were here for that time, we heard about the fact that the prophets were to live and speak in such a way as to point everyone to the Messiah, to Christ. The kings were to rule in such a way that people would see Christ. By the way, that, that speaks how horrible it was for some of the kings like Manasseh to so abuse the position that God had set him in. But that was what they were to do. And then the priests were to function in such a way to constantly be pointing people to the anointed one who was to come, to the Christ. Because Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Fulfilling all of those positions that had been divided up among men, but combined in the Lord Jesus. And they were to look to him. And we need to understand that every passage of scripture, whether it specifically mentions Christ or not, is actually in some way pointing us to him. Because he is the living word about which the written word was written. And so we need to be very clear on that. We need to read the scriptures with the broad, what people would call the meta-narrative, the broad storyline always in the back of our minds so that we understand God is bringing everything along in the Old Testament for Christ to come into the world and, and, and everything in the New Testament after Christ has, has died and risen again to show how that church should function and show how Christ rules and reigns and eventually will rule and reign in perfection over the whole earth. A new heavens and a new earth. One other point or one other thing to just keep in mind. When this book was written, it was combined with Ezra and was considered for many, many years by the Jews to be a single book. These books were written during the post-exilic history of Israel 
while the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying. It's interesting that Israelites were deported from the Holy Land in three primary deportations, and these books describe them as coming back into the Holy Land in three primary uh, returns. We see this in Ezra 6, 14, and 15, where uh, they actually rebuilt the, uh, the temple, and this was under the leadership of Zacharias. The second major return to the land came under Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. And so the first time they come back, it's to rebuild the temple. The second time they come back, Ezra comes back and brings others with him. He is going to be the teacher of the Word of God primarily in that time. He set his heart to understand. He studied the law in order to teach its statutes. And finally, we have Nehemiah coming back, and his purpose was rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And as we come to this eighth chapter, the wall has recently been completed. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15 says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. The month of Elul was the sixth month. The passage that we read begins in the last last half of chapter 7 verse 73, continues through chapter 10 really as a unit, and it tells us that When the seventh month had come, the people were in their vows. And on the first day of that month, so we know that this takes place within a week from the time the wall is finished. That's your historical setting. The wall is finished. That activity has been completed. And now there is a time when they need rest. You can imagine the weariness of having to not only build the wall, but stand in defense against those who are opposing its building. But they then wanted to hear the word. I want us to see this text in the whole of its context. I've heard this very often preached uh, to preachers uh, about expository preaching. And I think it does that. They read the word, they explained the word, they exhorted with the word. That's what expository preaching does. You read the word, you explain the word, you exhort with the word, and then you start the next time and you do the same thing over and over and over again. But I want us to look at this in a broader context, not just what Ezra And those who were assisting him did. I want us to look at what the responses among the people were. And so let's begin with this. And we'll spend a little time here. But God's people cannot truly live without the reading of the law that is the word of God. God's people cannot truly live without the reading of the law or the word of God. And it's likely that this reading of the law was not occurring during the entirety of the time that these people were in exile. And so there was a great deal of ignorance concerning the law of God among the people. 
Look at what's said in verses 1 to 6. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And we'll stop there for just a minute. But again, it's likely that this reading hadn't occurred for quite some time. And yet it was something that we'll see in a little bit was required or had been required in the past. But surely one of the reasons that it is so important for pastors and Sunday school teachers and others who have been given teaching roles in the church to teach the word is that it is so easy for God's truth to get lost in the midst of our busyness. These people had been in exile, they'd come back, and they have been a busy people. They had been uh, on this long journey back, a wearying journey. Not only that, but they had been rebuilding the temple and then the wall around the city. All the while, they needed to be planting crops, harvesting crops, and other necessary things for their livelihood. And so they had been extremely busy. How like them are we today? We have busy work schedules. It's interesting to me and has been for quite some time. We have more time-saving devices in our culture than any culture in the history of mankind. And yet I watch people and they are busy all the time. I'm not saying it's bad to be busy, but I, I, I do think there are times we need to come away from that and concentrate on the Lord. It's one of the reasons that we do this on a Sunday. Hopefully this is a day when you kind of set it aside at least to some extent. And you have to some extent or you probably wouldn't be here this morning. But we set it aside to to fellowship together and to hear from the word of God and to sing his praises. And some of the other busyness of the week (coughs) gets set aside. And that's a good and necessary thing. We not only have busy work schedules, we probably, and this is one of the reasons I think we're so busy, we probably have more potential distractions than any other culture in the history of mankind. Some of you know I've been doing some substitute teaching at a Christian school. And one of the problems early in the school year was a problem that you have seen in certain areas of your life, maybe you've had this problem yourself where you look around and you see uh, a room full of people that haven't seen each other for quite some time and nobody's talking to each other because they're all doing this. We couldn't get kids to put their phones down. They finally got them to put their phones down, but not without some disciplinary action. We find distractions everywhere. 
do we do we set time aside personally, privately, even to be alone with God? Do we come to a place like this on a Sunday and and can we get the cares of the world set aside somewhere so that we can focus in and really give ourselves to understanding the Word of God so that it will impact our lives and by God's grace other lives through us? We should desire the Word of God. And in fact, as I look at this passage and I seek to draw some things out from it, one thing that I think we should note here is that we should require the teaching of the Word. We should require the teaching of the Word. Note that this event was first suggested or better called for not by Ezra, not by Nehemiah, and not by any necessarily of the people who assisted them. It was called for by the people. The leaders did not plan a revival meeting. As though revival can be planned. All true revival comes from God and that according to His timing. I have never seen a planned revival actually turn into a revival. Maybe I'm just ignorant of something that others have seen, but I've never seen it. Closest thing, the most marvelous thing at least that I've ever seen to a, a, a mass revival happened during a Bible conference. Not a revival, a Bible conference. And when it came, it was not shouts of amen and hallelujah and things like that that I heard but a stillness that you could even on the carpet you could almost hear a pin drop it was just I've never been anywhere seen anything like it since I still get chills just thinking about what God did that day it took the professors and all at the school three or four days to deal with everybody who needed to talk to them. The people demanded this. They called for Ezra to do this. And we should understand here that all true revival begins with the word of God and the people here desire the word. Notice in verse 1, they told Ezra the scribe, they told him to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This was their desire. It was what they wanted. Is that our desire? Do we long for the word? Do I long for the word? Do you? Am I disappointed if I come to a, a meeting and the word of God is not front and center? Now, I believe that the Lord was working in their lives, bringing them to this desire. We must also believe that their response to that truth was the work of God in their lives. We need to understand that we are to demand nothing less. And that when 
we receive the word, we need to love the word and yield a little to the, to the word. Damon did not ask me to say this, but love the one who is delivering the word because he's dedicating his life to try to do that. Not only should we require the teaching of the word, but also notice that we should require that the word be obeyed. The call for Ezra to read the law was actually commanded in the scripture. It was in line with what the law required of the children of Israel. Perhaps some of them somewhere along the line remembered or had heard in the past Deuteronomy 31, 10 to 13. Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the set time and the year of release at the Feast of Booths when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land and that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Sadly, this command had been ignored, at least while the nation was in exile. And so there was a great deal of ignorance among the people in spite of Ezra's attempts to teach. That also poses this question in my mind. Why did God command that the law be read through in the hearing of the people at least once every seven years? Why would God command that? Well, to answer that question, I, let me give you several responses, several ideas. First, because we forget. Because we forget. I forget. I don't know about you, but I forget. And the older I get, the more I forget. If I'm, not forget, if I'm not careful, I forget I forgot. We see, these, or see this among the people of Israel on many, many occasions. We see it in our own lives. We need to hear the word of God on a consistent basis because we forget it. Most of us have multiple copies of the word of God in our homes. They did not have that privilege. They memorized as much scripture as possible and often had shorthand written passages or short handwritten passages in their homes. But we have an incredible advantage over them in that we have the whole of God's word readily at hand. And yet too often we don't take advantage of that and too often we forget. A second reason for the command to read the law publicly every seven years is because younger people who may not have heard from quality teachers of the law, need to hear. Moses makes that argument when he says that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. We have a new generation coming up, and one of the joys of being in this congregation is to look around and see young families with children. I was looking around earlier, and all around me there were babies and we have others on the way, and we're thankful for that. But these young people are going to need to hear the word of God, and, 
And Moses makes that argument when he gives this passage. And so God himself gives this argument. A third reason is that the word of God is used by God to bring fear of him into our hearts. This is one of the reasons why men don't want to hear the word. They don't desire to hear the the word. And it's a reason why sometimes preachers do not clearly and accurately proclaim the whole word of God. Sinful men prefer the wisdom of the world over the wisdom of God. And without the fear of God, based upon the word of God, there is only worldly wisdom. The fourth reason is that sinful men and women do not want to have their sins pointed out to them, yet they desperately need to be convinced of their sinfulness. They prefer to live in ignorance and avoid conviction from the Holy Spirit. If we're not careful, we all do. None of us like to be convicted of something we did wrong, and yet we need that. The world, by the way, hated Jesus because his holiness constantly reminded them of their own sinfulness, and his words reminded them of their own sinfulness. So the world will hate those who are made holy through faith in Christ. Those who live lives that are being transformed into the image of Christ. And surely they will hate the word of a holy God. They don't want to hear. They want to rest peacefully in their ignorance of thinking anything they do is sinful. Years ago, we had some friends that were missionaries in England. And they showed a video when they came home off the field of a lady who, uh, who had come to Christ while they were there under their ministry. And she was an atheist when they began talking to her. And she made this statement. I started to believe that there might be a God, but I didn't want to believe because if there was a God, it meant that I might be responsible to him. And I did not want to think that I was responsible to God. That's where the world is. The world doesn't want any responsibility before God. They don't like the word of God because it reminds us that we have a responsibility before a holy being. The Lord commanded every seven years this is to be done. The people come and demand it, and Ezra will, in fact, perform what has been required. So we should require the teaching of the word and obedience to what the word says. But note also that the people spoke, as it were, with one voice. said, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, We're reminded that we as God's people should remain unified. The people as a whole came with this request or demand. They gathered as one man, one individual. Rarely in the history of Israel do we see that kind of unity among the people. And sadly, in today's churches, we rarely see this kind of unity. The people are to speak with one voice, demanding that their leaders proclaim the truth of Scripture, 
then the preachers must give the people the truth. We must do the study to learn, and then we must speak the word of God with clarity and with accuracy and with power, and not our own power, for we truly have none, but the power of the Holy Spirit. We as preachers of God's word must never apologize for what it says, but must proclaim it as what it is, the very word of God. The most terrifying thing in my life is knowing that I will give an answer to God for having proclaimed his word. And really, one of my prayers for our Sunday school teachers and everyone who ever stands here or teaches in any way, even for parents as they seek to teach their children, Lord, help them to get it right so that we do not have to be forgiven at the judgment seat and lose reward perhaps even because we messed it up. No wonder James would say, let not many of you become teachers. It's a scary proposition to proclaim the word of God. Now, what did Ezra do? We don't know the exact time gap between the people's request and this first day of the seventh month, but we again do know that it was less than a week because it was following the completion of the wall, and Nehemiah 6.15 tells us, so the wall was finished in 20, on the 25th day of the month Elul, which again is the sixth month of the Jewish calendar in 52 days. It's likely that the people spoke and Ezra responded by immediately setting up the the pulpit, if you will, and and doing the reading as quickly as possible. He gathered around him godly men and read the law of God from early in the morning until noon. Most commentators think that it was probably from about six in the morning until noon. So for six hours, this is an ongoing thing. So the word of God was read and explained for these six hours, and the people, it says, were attentive It also seems that they stood for the entire reading, which is pretty incredible. I recently had some people tell me that in today's church, after 20 minutes, the preacher's lost half his crowd. And after 30 minutes, he's lost them all. Now, I'm not going to stand here and argue for six-hour sermons. Sometimes I need that much to get one in, but I'm not going to stand here and argue for that, okay? But it is sad to me that in the church as a whole, there is such a lack of desire for the word of God that we want 15 minutes and out. In too many places, and by God's grace, that's never happened here. I love it when, when I know sometimes people have things they have to go do and, and after the service is over, people get out pretty quickly and all like that. But if I'm not careful, I'm here till 2.30 or whatever. I, I, we just, people stand and talk and fellowship together and we'll have our meal together in a few minutes and, and there'll be fellowship uh, around that. And, and um, that is so good. And it should be time of, 
of refreshing and, and encouragement and exhorting one another and, and um, helping one another and praying for one another. In too many places, when it comes to the services themselves, it's like the, the less time the sermon goes, the better. And I simply ask, where is the hunger for the word that drives a man or woman to maintain an attention span that exceeds 20 minutes? And I encourage you, I encourage my own life, love the word Long for the word, listen to the word, and then live by the word. This is God's revelation to us. And he did not give it to us for our harm, but for our good. Again, the writer of Nehemiah mentions several other men other than Ezra who took part in the reading on that day. The first list likely represents leaders of the people who were manifesting their unity with Ezra and what he was reading. The last list found in verse 7 were Levites who helped the people to understand the law. There's some difference of opinion as to whether these men were translating due to the fact that some of the people spoke only in Aramaic and may not have understood Hebrew. Remember, they'd been in exile for 70 years, some of the younger ones, may not even known Hebrew, but only Aramaic. So that's one idea that they were translating, and others think that they were actually explaining. What were they actually doing? In other words, we could ask the question, were they translating or were they explaining? And my answer is yes. I think it's likely they were doing both. Whatever position is taken, however, the fact remains that the reading of the law was to be understood. That is vital. One of the goals of reading the word or preaching the word is its understanding among the people. This is why William Tyndale would talk about translating the Bible out of the original languages into English so that a plowboy could understand it. His goal was to make sure that the uneducated who could barely read could still read this and read it with comprehension. If people do not understand the word, we're really wasting our time proclaiming it. Let me mention a couple of more quick side notes, and then we need to move on. First, the people were not told to stand for the reading of the word. I think it's a good thing, and we do that before sermons. They stood on their own. They wanted to hear from God. By the way, another little attack, not so little attack on the word of God, we we live in a day when people are crying out that they want to hear from God personally, and this generally means they want to hear him speak, not from an ancient book, but verbally and vocally to them in the present. And that's a subtle or not so subtle attack on the word. Do you desire to hear from God? You need to do nothing more than open his book and read. 
Read it aloud if you wish. In reading it aloud, you'll hear your own voice, but you'll hear God speak out loud. And a second quick note is this. There is a classic biblical, biblical example here of expository reading or preaching. They read the law. They explained the law. They exhorted with the law. That's basically what biblical exposition is. But with that in mind, I want us to look at the responses. How did the people respond? This is, this is where every message I've ever heard anybody preach stopped from this passage. What happened? Well, we've never gotten there, and I think it's important that we do. There are several responses or several things that happen as a result of the reading of God's law. First, God's people cannot truly live without repentance. God's people cannot truly live without repentance. Look at verse 9. Now, very little is said about repentance in this passage, but the writer gives clear indication that the people repented when he said this. In verse 9, Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did the people weep? One modern commentator said, On this occasion in Nehemiah's day, when the law was made clear to the people, many realized how badly they had been violating it. They were overcome with shame, grief, and fear. And I think that's true. And so upon hearing this and recognizing how greatly they had violated it, they repented, they mourned, they wept over the fact that they had not done what God required. When they were told to weep no longer, but rather to rejoice, we have clear evidence of the forgiving character of God, too. He's a God of holiness and justice and wrath, but he is also a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And the people recognize their sin. They recognize their failure. They weep before God and one another, and yet the Ezra and Nehemiah and the others come to them and say, don't weep anymore. Don't weep anymore. We need to understand this. They were not saying that mourning and weeping was an improper response to the reading of the law, but that the people could and should be moved off beyond this to rejoicing. I know people who cannot seem to rest in the forgiveness that God grants. Did you hear that? I know people who cannot seem to rest in the forgiveness that God grants. I'm not talking about forgiving yourself. I I don't think that's a biblical concept. But you and I need to rest in the forgiveness that God grants to us. Rest in the forgiveness that God grants to you. These people 
perhaps you are one of them, dredge up old sins and can even become spiritual cripples, unable to function fully for God because they are convinced of their own unworthiness to the extent that they just, I can't do anything for God, I'm so unworthy. Well, we all are. We're all unworthy. None of us is worthy to do anything for God. But he wants us to do those things. He desires that we do those things. He gives us the ability to do those things in Christ. Through his forgiveness. So don't weep. Don't continue to weep. Don't weep all day long. Let's move beyond that. Repentance is needed. It's necessary. But we need to move beyond repentance. We certainly do not need in our lives to come to the point where we cannot even function as spiritual warriors or as servants of God because we always dredge up those horrible things that we've done in our past. The Apostle Paul spoke of himself as the foremost of sinners. It did not mean that he could not or was not greatly used of God. And we see that in the lives of others. Peter was mentioned this morning in in our Sunday school hour. Peter is kind of front and center in his declaration. And it's really, I know Brother Mike was was talking about, you know, in, in just this really compressed time frame, he goes from one of the greatest moments in his life to one of the worst moments in his life. He goes from, saying that, that you're Lord, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he turns around when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but Jesus says he's going to his death. And he turns around to Jesus and says, you can't do that. Well, wait a minute, Peter. Who did you just say was Lord? And now you're telling him what he can and can't do. That's a pretty low point in Peter's life. And remember that he was repentant. Another word that begins with the letter R is, and we'll use this in a little bit, he was restored and God mightily used him not only on the day of Pentecost, but throughout the remainder of his life. Didn't mean he was perfect. In fact, Paul had to actually rebuke him at one point. But he continued to serve Christ until he Served him through a martyr's death. Do not allow past failure to cripple you to the point that you cannot serve the Lord. He is forgiving. And another aspect of repentance that needs to be understood here is that it continued for some time. If you look at chapter 9, verses 1 Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and and in sackcloth and with uh, earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. This becomes a continuing pattern in their lives. I asked somebody one time the question, Describe for me, or I asked him to do this, describe for me the Christian life, and his response was, 
the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. I think it's more than that, but I think it is at least that. We are living in that continual repentance because we go through this cycle of, of understanding what we should do and then not doing it or, or you know, abusing what we know in some other way and failing and sinning and we need to ask God to forgive us and, and that's, that's a pattern that we go through. To the point that the Apostle Paul cries out at the end of Romans 7, who can free me from this? And answers with Jesus Christ, our Lord. And no one else can free me from this. True repentance is sorrowful and seeks to correct previous errors, but it does not remain forever in a state of sadness. It moves on to revival, to restoration, and to rejoicing. And I want you to see that as we move forward here. We need to understand also that God's people require constant revival if they are to truly live. If you want to live the kind of life that God wants you to live, you're going to need constant revival going on in your life. Notice, if you would, what happens in verse 10 and following here. Verse 10 following. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And then you see this all the way through chapter 9 and through chapter 10. There is a revival that occurs in chapter 9. We see this tremendous working of God as they continue to, to read the law and confess their sins one to another. And then when you get to chapter 10, what are they doing? They're recommitting themselves to a covenant relationship with God. They have been revived. God has revived them. And they are committing themselves anew to be doing what God has called them to do. To live as God has called them to live. Is that true in your life? Is it true in mine? Do we know what it is to be brought to the place of repentance and then to be revived in such a way that, that we with a new freshness, a new power, a new ability, a, a new energy, follow after our Lord Jesus Christ. We all need this. We all need this ministry from God to us. And it comes through his word. These people, it says here, were to feast and share with neighbors who might not have been prepared or who might not have, or who might have been too poor to participate in an abundant manner. That's chapter 8, verses 10 to 12. 
But God revives his wayward people, and he's always seeking to do that. Let me illustrate that for you really quickly from Revelation, the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says to the Ephesian church, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Don't just repent. Repent and do the works you did at first. Be revived. To the church at Pergamum, he exhorted, therefore, repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He said to the church at Thyatira, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on your on you any other burden. I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come, the one who conquers and the one who works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as you read down through these churches, even to the church in Laodicea, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And the idea there is we don't just repent and do nothing, we repent, are revived, and begin to serve the Lord afresh. These churches were in danger of having their candlesticks removed, but our Lord reached out to them, and he reached out to them with a word of forgiveness and revival if they would only repent. God seeks to revive his people. Again, the truth is that we all need such a work of God in our hearts from time to time because we all tend at times to grow cold. So I exhort you, church, hear the word. Hear it read and explained and then repent and be revived by a loving Lord. As God revives, he also restores. Note that God's people require restoration when they've fallen from following him. It's true, and this this comes, by the way, in verse 17. All the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in the booze from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. They were restored. Again, it's true that the word restore or restoration is not used in the verses. So how do we make this point? Well, when you look at what they did and the fact that there was great rejoicing, we note that the words For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. In that, we have a stamp of God's approval upon their actions. He had restored his people. We have a note of God's approval here. He is restoring them. He is restoring them. We can't be certain of the exact meaning of this phrase for the feast had been uh, celebrated in some form through the history of Israel. But it's likely that the reference has something to do with the residents of Jerusalem itself. Notice 
in these verses that it includes the idea back in verse 16 the people went out and brought them that is these branches of trees to make booths for themselves to dwell in they went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on his roof and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim then in verse 17 it says that they had not done this until that day I think if you put those two things together, what he's saying is that other people who came from other places, say they lived in Galilee, they came to Jerusalem, they built for themselves booth, but maybe the residents of Jerusalem didn't do that. And here you have this massive moving of God, and even the residents of Jerusalem go out in the surrounding areas, cut these, and put them on their roofs so they're living in these booths on their roof. It's the only thing in the text that I can see that that separates this out. Now, there may be something else that, that we just aren't told of here. So we can't know exactly what it means, but that's the closest I can get, that this manifests a rejoicing and a celebration that was unheard of to this point in Israel's history. This is an unusual moving of God in their lives. They built these shelters and dwelt in them even though they had houses they could have dwelt in. So they repented, they were revived, they were restored, and I want you to notice one other thing that happens as a result of this proclamation of the Word of God. God's people rejoice in the Word and work of God when they repent. That's from chapter 8, verse 10, all the way through chapter 10. We don't have time to read the whole thing. But we, receive, we see this rejoicing in the word, for example, when we read in verse 18 of chapter 8, and day to day from the first day to the last day he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. You say, how do you get that they were rejoicing there? Um, this reading of the law of God day by day actually exceeded what was required by the law. And it wasn't done as a legalistic, legalistic requirement, but was the overflow of hearts that had been turned to the Lord. A newborn believer who lacks a hunger for truth is almost a contradiction in terms. When one truly turns from sin to God, you will not have to chase him or her down. He or she will desire to be with God's people and to hear God's word. God will put a hunger in the heart of a true believer. It's true that we can grow in our desire for the word. And we're exhorted to by Peter who said, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil envy and slander. And then he said this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up unto salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so we see an element of rejoicing there. But look back, if you would, when they commanded the people not to mourn or weep in verse 9. Then in verse 10, he said to them, Go your way, eat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What is one of the results of hearing the word, repenting where we have failed, being uh, restored by God, revived by God, all of those elements that we've talked about, what is the end result of that? The end result is rejoicing. I hope you understand that no pastor that I know of, no pastor uh, here ever would get in the pulpit with the idea of what can I say today that will make everyone miserable. You know, this works with your children someday when they don't like one of your rules in your home. You take them back to Genesis and say something along this line. God looked down from heaven and he saw all this joy and happiness because that was all there was. There was no regret. There was no sadness, anything like that. And can you imagine God in heaven saying, hmm, what can I do to destroy that happiness? There's just too much smiling going on down there. I know I'll make a rule and that'll destroy it all. That's not what God did and that's not what a good parent does either. You don't make rules for that purpose. Young people, your parents do not sit around trying to come up with rules to see how miserable they can make you. Just understand that. That's not what they do. It may seem that way at times, but that's not their desire. That's not what their motive is. We see God having given his law to his people, and he says that he gave it to them for their good. God never puts a requirement on your life that is not ultimately good for you. He never puts a requirement on my life that is not ultimately good for me. And when we obey, it brings rejoicing. I know the world around us is growing worse. I know that we can look around and say, boy, you know, it's just, I don't know how we're going to make it. And if we're not careful, we can get under all of those kind of things. And then we can, you know, forget to read our Bibles or we get busy and don't get it done and all of those kind of things. But we need this word. We need the word of God. And when we know it, and it convicts us and we repent, then we ultimately can know rejoicing. That takes me to one final thought before we close. What is the overall purpose for the inclusion in our Bibles of the book of Nehemiah? Or any book in this particular passage? What is the ultimate reason it's here? Eugene Merle sums it up in a very, very 
great fashion when he said this. The overriding theological, con theological concern of Ezra and Nehemiah was for the restoration of the post-exilic Jewish community to a position of covenant purity and faithfulness so that it might take up and perpetuate its God-given privilege and task of mediating his salvific intentions to the whole world, his saving intentions. Despite its failure in doing so as a community, Ezra and Nehemiah helped establish the conditions that could prepare the way for the one who in the fullness of time brought to pass the hopes and dreams of these mighty reformers. In other words, God used this revival to help prepare the way for the coming and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's reading this in the broad meta-narrative or with the whole story of what God is doing in mind. God is bringing a nation that is struggling and has become wayward back to himself through this in order to bring about his plan, his program, his pro prophesied reality of Christ coming into the world to save sinners. Now, we've spoken to what God does with the reading and understanding of his word in the past, but never forget that he has a purpose today and still honors his word. And where does the Bible point us? Where does this passage point us? Where does the whole Bible point us? It points us to the one who rose from the grave, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who will return in great glory. It points us to a hill called Calvary, where the Son of God bore the sin of man so that he could forgive all who believe. Remember, one of the things that we talk about here in Nehemiah, these people recognized their sin, but they were not simply to repent. They were to come to the place of rejoicing. How could they do that? Because God revived them and because God restored them. And in so doing, he brought to them rejoicing. Can we not rejoice that sin is forgiven? Do you realize that I can even look at the cross and become so overwhelmed with my own sinfulness that if I'm not careful, I can become a spiritual cripple unable to function? You realize that? You ever look at the cross? Picture the cross. Get a, a, a mental view of what Christ did or had to do. When we were coming this morning, we were listening to some things. Michelle will put in something on her phone a lot of times when we're coming up, and we'll listen to some Christian music on the way up. And, and one of the songs that was sung was by a man who does some interesting things, just with, he, he sings all the parts himself and blends it together. And, and, um, but he was singing a song called, I Was the Thorn. I 
and that resonated with me this morning. I, I was the thorn. I could word that another way. I was the nail. Whatever it was that held Christ to that cross, that was me. That was me. Because it was my sin that put him there just as much as it was anyone else's. By the way, it wasn't really my sin that held him there, but it was his love for me that held him there. He could have come down. But my sin pierced him. And I could look at that, and if that's the only place I ever went, I could become so overwhelmed with my guilt. And in some ways, rightly so, that I could just, I could never move. But what Nehemiah teaches us here is that we can move beyond that because Christ didn't die just to make us sense our guilt. He died and rose again so that we could be free. So that we could be free of the guilt. And not simply know the mourning of repentance, but the joy of restoration so that we could rejoice. How is it with your life today? Are you overwhelmed with guilt? Repent and be revived and restored and rejoice. For God in Christ forgives. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these truths, the things that you seek to do in our lives with them, only you know for sure. When I fail, help me to be quick to realize that and repent and bring me to that place of of revival and restoration and rejoicing. And Father, I would pray that you would do that for each one here. And if there's one here who does not know Christ, may your goodness, your grace, your love manifested in the outpouring of the blood of Christ as he gave himself on Calvary's tree as a sacrifice for sinners be so real that the Spirit of God can use that to draw that one to Christ. May that one today repent and trust him alone. And then, Father, may our fellowship together in a few moments bring great rejoicing to all as we rejoice in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.